Well, good morning, Good Shepherd. Whether you are live in our Charlotte campus or live streaming, I'm Talbot Davis, the pastor here. As always, 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 delighted to be able to connect with you. And this is week two of this series, Scripture and the Skeptic, because sometimes the people in your lives who are really skeptical and doubtful towards what the Bible says and what it's about, maybe it's that person you live with, maybe it's the person you work with, maybe it's the person you love, maybe it's the person when you, you see when you look in the mirror. There's all kinds of people in our lives and, and all kinds of people within the sound of my voice who just don't know what to make of the Bible. We've heard about it. We've heard things about it. We're not sure what to make of it. And, and today, week two of the series is called, Why is the Bible so messy? And to help us answer that question about why the Bible is so messy, if you have your Bible with you and it looks kind of like this, maybe you have an old school Bible, locate Genesis chapter 37 and 38. And, and to find that, just open it and turn left and you'll get to Genesis and chapter 37 and 38. And uh, if your Bible's not here and, or it's loaded on your phone, locate it that way. And if you don't have a Bible that looks like this and you didn't even know you could put a Bible on your phone, that's okay as well because the words are going to be up on the screen. They always are at just the right time at this church because uh, not only do we like to answer people's questions about the Bible, we, we have a couple things that we remind ourselves that we in leadership of this church believe about the scripture, you may not believe all this stuff yet. And that's great. We, we just like to be honest with who we are. And one of those things is that we, that we believe is that we understand that although this does look like a book, especially when I hold it in my hands like this, the Bible's not a book. It is a library written by a lot of authors over hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years in multiple writing styles. Genesis, this section of Genesis we're looking at today is just ancient, ancient history describing events that happened uh, 32, 3,500 years ago or more. And there's just kind of a fact. The other thing that we believe in leadership here about the Bible, and it kind of gives us a, some solidarity, some unity as a community, is, th is that we believe that it's unlike any other library on earth, that God breathed his life into its words and he put his truth onto its pages. You may not believe this yet and that's okay, but we do. We believe the Bible is inspired and eternal and true. And out of that belief, we have kind of an odd habit that we do together when we talk about the Bible. We lift it up and, and that's phones and, and books and Bibles. And, and if you haven't been here before and you're looking around or tuning in and you're just like, that's kind of strange. We don't, we, we don't deny it. It is strange. But we've discovered that this is a moment of oddity, shapes our identity as a community. There were a collection of people joyfully surrendered to the authority of God's word and ready for his power to be let loose in our midst. Amen. And before I say another word, let's pray. So Father, thank you for your word and thank you for gathering this community here together live and live stream. And, and I thank you, God, that I really, truly am absolutely powerless without you. But because of you, I'm never helpless. Use everything that I share in these next moments in the hearts and minds and lives of exactly who you want to be touched by it. In Jesus' name, amen. 
Well, I remember that time uh, back when I was in college and, and I went to one of those colleges where everybody thought that they were super smart and a, a few of them actually were. And uh, I think it was my sophomore year at that college and one of, one of the other college classmates, I didn't know the fellow, he wrote this letter to the editor of the daily campus newspaper. I mean, our college had a newspaper. Y'all remember newspapers? And like you could really touch and open up and read every day. And, and this letter to the editor that this guy who I didn't know wrote, wrote it was just filled, filled with cri criticisms towards Christians in general and towards the Bible in particular. I mean, it was blistering in its criticisms. And this was the early 80s when this letter was written. I can only imagine how heated that sort of criticism would be today. But, but this guy just kept laying it on all of his criticisms about Christianity and all of his criticisms about the Bible. And when it came to the Bible, he, he was really at his most merciless. And he, he pointed out all the holes in it, all the messes in it, all the flaws in the Bible. And I'll always remember sort of his, his, his crowning touch. Like, like, like the, the, the argument to end all arguments. And it was this, because he put it in the letter, that when Jesus in the Bible had risen from the dead, he was still so self-absorbed, even in his resurrected state, that the first thing that he said to, to his followers was here in Luke chapter 24, verse 41. And I remember this from the letter to the editor where it says this, and when they still did not believe, this is his followers, because of joy and amazement, he asked them, y'all have anything here to eat? And, and I, I remember reading that letter to the editor and the first thing that Jesus says when he's risen from the dead is that he's hungry. Can you get him some breakfast? And, and, and I was like, such a, such a small-minded savior in, in such a mistake-filled book. And I probably just don't believe in this Christianity stuff anymore at all. The, the criticisms were made, made such logical sense and they, and they were given with, with such emotion and so many holes in the Bible, such a mess. And I just like, I'm probably done. Probably done with this whole Jesus thing. And, and maybe... Maybe it's kind of the same way with you. Maybe there's people here within the sound of my voice, live and live stream, and, and you have been convinced by some really smart people that the only folks who still believe in the Bible and still believe in Jesus are really dumb. And so maybe you walked away from the faith for that exact reason. Or maybe you haven't walked away from the faith yet, but the faith's hold on you is very precarious because again, all the smart people, all the cool kids have been telling you how unreliable the Bible actually is. And, and, and maybe if the faith's hold on you isn't all that precarious, isn't all that tenuous, nevertheless, you're still one of those people who every time you open up the Bible, you're a little bit nervous, you're a little bit anxious because you just don't know what kind of strange, weird thing that it's going to say. Something that seems so out of touch with the way that modern life works. I mean, you, you really hoped that within these covers, there'd just be a nice, sanitized little book full of good religious advice that no one could object to. 
And then you open it up and there is just this combination of weird and strange and odd and mess. And so that so many people, both within the sound of my voice and so many people who, who, who you know, who regard the Bible that way. And, and so you know how we're gonna address sort of this complication, this issue that people have with the Bible. Why is it so messy? Why is there so much, so many strange old stories? How can something so old have anything to do with my life today? You, you know how we're gonna deal with it? We're gonna deal with it by looking at one of the messiest stories in the whole library. A story with an incredibly high ick factor. A, a, a story that you might feel like you got to take a quick shower after we're all done looking at it. And, and a story that if you don't know what life was like in those days, if you don't know the, the things that the authors of the Bible and the original audience reading and hearing the Bible, the things they took for granted, the things they just thought about how life worked, if, if you don't know any of those things, the story will make zero sense. But when you do, and when you discover actually that reading the Bible is so much more interesting and so much more enjoyable than just hearing about the Bible, and you see what God does with this phenomenal story, you'll be like, ha, ah. you'll be blown away. Because the story that I'm talking about, the, the messy story with a high degree of ick factor, it, it involves a man named Judah. Everybody say his name, just so you got it. Judah and his daughter-in-law, Tamar, and a whole lot of deception and intrigue and family drama. Is anybody part of a family that has a little bit of, stop raising your hands, everybody, that has some family drama and some deception and some intrigue. But before we look at the story involving Judah and his daughter-in-law, Tamar, we need to look, take a quick look at the story before the story. Because Judah, he was brothers with a fellow you may have heard of, Joseph, the same Joseph with the Technicolor Dreamcoat. And they put the, the, that show, Joseph and the Technicolor Dreamcoat on Broadway, which turns him into Broadway Joe. And Judah and Joseph were brothers. They were not bros, though. They were just brothers. Because Joseph was the, near the, the youngest end of a long, big family of a bunch of brothers. And the older brothers didn't like the little brother. They thought he was bratty and, and entitled and annoying. And so they decided, instead of just giving him a wedgie or, or telling him he couldn't come to Thanksgiving, they decide to sell him to slave traders. I mean, that escalated quickly. And then these brothers who, who have just kind of offed their brother Judah, they go back to tell their daddy, Jacob, that Judah, that, that Joseph, I got this bunch of J names here and I got to get them all right. The, they, they go back to tell their daddy, Jacob, that their brother Joseph has been eaten by a wild animal. And look at Jacob's response in Genesis chapter 37 and verses 34 and 35. This is after his, the, the, the brothers tell him Judah, Judah's dead. He's been eaten. Then Jacob tore his clothes, put on sackcloth and mourned for his son for many days. All his sons and daughters came to comfort him, but he, re Joseph's not dead, but they, they, don't, they don't stop the con game. And 
but he refused to be comforted. No, he said, I will continue to mourn until I join my son in the grave. And so his father wept for him. And Judah is right there telling their father that Joseph, his brother, is dead when he's not really dead. I guess you could say that, that Judah, he doesn't just have a character defect. He is a character defect. And the story picks up and in, in chapter 38, which, which looks, I, I don't know if you know this about the book of Genesis, but sort of the verse, chapters 37 through 50, the end of the book is all about dead, not dead Joseph. And so it looks like verse, chapter 38 with Judah and Tamar is kind of an interruption, but it's really not. But look how chapter 38 opens. Chapter 38, verse one. At that time, Judah left his brothers and went down to stay with a man of Adalam named Hira. Now this actually makes sense because a lot of time people who are plagued with shame, just, you know, they want to get away. And so they, they bolt from the source of that shame. And I would imagine that Judah seeing his father every day and his father thinks his brother's dead when he's not really, we just sold him to slaves. We didn't kill him. So I imagine he decides to escape from the source of that shame. And while he is away in a far country, Judah marries and has children. It was a custom, a man in the far country gives him uh, uh, his daughter to, to be Judah's wife. They marry, they have children and, and his children grow up. And, and his first son, Judah's first son over in this far country is, is a, a young man named Ur. And I guess they named him Ur because um and but were already taken. So they named him Ur. And, and, and Judah gives Ur to a woman named Tamar to be married. This is very common. Marriages were arranged in, in the ancient world as they are in many developing countries today. And so this is just sort of custom. What's not custom is what happened to Ur. Look, look at verse 7 of chapter 38. But Ur, again, now you, you know because cousin already had the name um but Ur Judah's firstborn was wicked in the Lord's sight and that makes sense because his father doesn't just have a character defect he is one he was wicked in the Lord's sight so the Lord put him to death we don't know how that happened we don't know the cause of death we just know that there's some connection between this man's wickedness and his demise and all of a sudden Tamar is a childless widow. Now, what you may not know about childless widows in the ancient world is that they typically had two choices, starvation or prostitution. There was no safety net. There was no government services. There was no protection around them. So there was no one more vulnerable in the ancient world than a childless widow prostitution or starvation were their choices. And so in light of that, Israel and its neighbors, most of the people in the ancient Near East, they came up with both a law and a custom. You got to know this. It made perfect sense to them while it causes most of us to want to hurl our breakfast. And here's their law and here's their custom. If you had a childless widow and her husband has died, the younger brother of the now dead husband has to step up 
and marry the widow and have children with her so because the children provide stability and security and every woman within the sound of my voice every wife within the sound of my voice and you have an annoying brother-in-law that you can't believe he comes from the same gene pool as your sweet husband right now your breakfast is just kind of going going up isn't it and 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 others of you you're you're married you're like elbowing your man don't die on me don't you dare die on me and So it made perfect sense to them. Strange, odd to us. Well, so what happens is Judah, the father-in-law of Tamar, he has another son and his son's named Onan and he does what is expected and he gives Onan to Tamar to marry her and and to procreate with her. And Onan upholds half of that bargain, half of that deal. He marries Tamar, but he refuses to procreate with her. You can read Genesis 38, nine on your own, please. Uh, But look how the story picks up at verse 10 of Genesis chapter 38. What he did was wicked in the Lord's sight, so the Lord put him to death also. Again, we don't know the cause of death, we just know it's related to his wickedness. Judah, father-in-law, then said to his daughter-in-law Tamar, live as as a widow in your father's household until my son Shelah grows up. For he thought, well, he may die too, just like his brothers. So Tamar went to live in her father's household. Judah's now in this dilemma because he's got two dead sons and the common denominator is Tamar. And he's got to wonder, is is she a murderer? Is she bad luck? What's the deal? And, And so he has a younger son who hasn't gone, honestly, hadn't gone through puberty yet. And so he tells Tamar, you go live in your dad's house for a while. And when Shayla grows up, then I'll give him to, to you to marry. But inside he's thinking, inside he's, he's real. I mean, imagine Brady Bunch. Imagine if Marsha, if she married Greg and Greg died. And so then they gave him Peter and she, he, Peter married her and Peter died and all of a sudden Mike Brady, he's not willing to sacrifice poor sweet Bobby and he's just not gonna do it. And, and, that, and that's what Judah is thinking. I'm not, I don't know if I wanna give this third son to her. Well, the years go by and, and Judah decides, I don't, Shayla grows up and he's marrying age in the ancient world, which essentially means he's a teenager now. And, and, and so he decides, I'm not going to give Shayla to Tamar because I see what's happened to her first two husbands. And so he doesn't uphold his end of the bargain. Well, as a few years go by, even though Tamar is in her father's household, that still is a childless widow, is incredibly precarious living. Again, this is how the, the mind and the world worked in the ancient world. Well, just when you don't think the story could get any stranger, it does. Just when you don't think the ick factor could increase, it does. Because look what happens in verse 15 through 18 of, the, of Genesis 38. This is when, because Tamar hears that Judah, her father-in-law, who hasn't upheld his end of the bargain, she hears that he's uh, taken a stroll through her town. When Judah, and she puts on a disguise. When Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute for she had covered her face. Not realizing that she was his daughter-in-law, he went over to her by the roadside and said, come now, let me sleep with you. 
And what will you give me to sleep with you, she asked. I'll send you a young goat for my flock, he said. Will you give me something as a pledge until you send it, she asked. He said, what pledge should I give you? Your seal and its cord and the staff in your hand, she answered. And so he gave them to her and slept with her. So one goat for one night of passion. I don't know, it seems like a lowball offer, but who knows about the value of livestock in the ancient world? I, I don't know, but, but notice what else Judah. Remember, Judah doesn't have a character defect. He is a character defect. And notice what he provides to Tamar, not knowing she's Tamar as a pledge. He gives him his, his staff and his seal and his cord. Essentially, in the ancient version, what he gave her was his social security number, his driver's license number. And if that's not enough, here's my credit card information as well. This is not wise. And just when, just when you don't think the story could get more bizarre or ickier, Look what happens as a result of that night of passion that was given in exchange for a goat. The last phrase of verse 15, and she became pregnant by him. So she's pregnant with her father-in-law's baby. And a few months later, Judah, he hears through the grapevine that his daughter-in-law is pregnant. And look at his righteous indignation, really unrighteous indignation. Look at what he says in verse 24. About three months later, Judah was told, your daughter-in-law Tamar is guilty of prostitution. And as a result, she is now pregnant. And Judah said, bring her out and have her burned to death. Remember, he is a character defect. The people who yell the loudest, they almost always have the most to hide. And as Tamar is being brought out to be executed by the community. <laughs> she has the ace in the hole. Look what happens in verse 25. As she was being brought out, she sent a message to her father-in-law. I am pregnant by the man who owns these, she said. And she added, see if you recognize who seal and cord and staff these are. Do, do, do you know whose credit card this is, daddy? Do you know whose social security number this is? That, that's the father of my child. And for the first time in the whole story, Judah has this moment of self-awareness. Because look at what he says in verse 26. Judah recognized them and said, she is more righteous than I, since I wouldn't give her to my son Shelah. And he did not sleep with her again, you think? And to the original audience, the one to whom Genesis was written, it wasn't written to us, it was preserved for us. To the original audience, this story is not messy, this story is justice. This story isn't gross, it's, it's vindication. That this man of prominence, this man of position, this man who is a character defect, he fails to uphold his end of the bargain and he gets played by a woman who is so resourceful and so desperate, she'll do almost anything to find herself a place of security in the ancient world. And when you understand that children in the ancient world, children were a sign of blessing because they represented security. Male, so lots of them were better. Male children even more 
so, look how the story ends up in verse 27. I love it. When the time came for her to give birth, hello, there were twin sons in her womb. And it's like Eric Huffman, author of Scripture and the Skeptic, it's like he describes this story. He says, the woman who dressed up like a prostitute to trick her father-in-law into making a baby with her, thus receiving a double blessing from God. And that about sums it up. Unless it doesn't. Unless the most absurd part of the story isn't even in the story. Unless the most absurd part of the story is actually way over in the New Testament, 1500 years or so later, Unless the most absurd part of the story, the the way that God turns our messes into something miraculous, unless the most absurd part of the story, we will find when Jesus's preeminent biographer, Matthew, he decides to start his gospel of Jesus, his, his biography of the Savior, with a trip through Jesus's family graveyard. And he opens up his gospel by giving the genealogy of Jesus. And you need to know that in ancient times when people gave genealogies, they had a lot of freedom in who to include and who to exclude, who to highlight and who to hide. And women in ancient times, women didn't make it into genealogies unless they'd done something truly extraordinary. It usually was only the men folk who got mentioned. And yet look, look how Matthew opens up his genealogy of Jesus. Matthew chapter one, verses one through three. This is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac, the father of Jacob, Jacob, the father of Judah and his brothers, Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. He didn't have to include it, but he did. And the reason that Matthew included Tamar's story in the genealogy of the Messiah is a way to is a way of letting everybody know not only in the original audience when G, when the gospel is first written but our audience today that God takes all of our messes and he turns them into the Messiah that the very ones that we would hide you, you know, the, the, the stories in our family, because you got them in your family and I got them in my family and those are the secrets that you want to sweep under the rug, you want to put in a corner, you want to hide in a drawer. And, and the Bible says, no, 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 no. We're not hiding that stuff. We're highlighting that stuff because we believe and we know that the people reading the sacred record, that they can in fact handle the truth And they can, in fact, be blessed by the ways that God takes the messes and turns them into the Messiah. Because no, it's not just, it's not just the Bible. It's the, it's the God who inspired the Bible. That that he's not embarrassed by these stories and neither should we be. That God is a master at, at, at taking 
everything that we want to hide and all the messes that we make out of life and turn them into something remarkable and turn them into the Messiah. And when you think about God's role in it and when you think about the, the people who decided what books made it into the Bible and what stories made it into the Bible and what the final collection of the Bible, the, they weren't the least bit embarrassed by this story and so neither should we be. Because here's what I want you to know. The, the Bible highlights what we'd hide when it tells about its heroes. And that makes it more inspired not less. We, we want a nice, safe, easy, sanitized book full of nice religious advice, and the Bible gives us real life. We, we, we want to hide all of, of our failures and faults and flaws and shame. We, we want to run away from the source of our shame. And the Bible has us lean into it and address it. The Bible highlights what we'd hide when it talks about its heroes. And that people, that makes it more inspired, not less. When I realized what the Bible really was, I, I stopped being intimidated by that letter to the editor when I was in college. And I started appreciating it for the beauty and the inspiration that it contains. Think about how different this is from all the other great religious books in the world. The, the, the other re religious books the religious texts in, in world history, they do not have characters with any flaws in them at all. Like, like the Quran, talking about Muhammad, that does not mention any flaws of Muhammad and you can get in a lot of trouble if you suggest there are. And, and other, other great religious books as, as well of, of other religions, they give us cardboard characters, one-dimensional characters who are only heroic with no flaws, who are only good with no evil. And the Bible alone, the Bible stands unique and it, because it trusts its readers. And it says, you all can handle the truth. You, you need to know what, what people really like because the Bible knows that every reference to human weakness only highlights God's greatness. Because the Bible highlights what we'd hide when it talks about its heroes. And that makes it more inspired, not less. Think, think about all the things that you've heard, that you've heard about Christians and their Bible. Narrow-minded, bigoted, malicious, cruel, judgmental. A, a, a group of judgmental people trying to appease a holy God, which is impossible. Those are things that you hear about Christians all the time. Well, this story takes all those understandings of Christians and our biblical library and, and pronounces bull over all of it. Because you see what God does. He doesn't run away from real life. He enters into it. He doesn't try to highlight human ugliness. He instead redeems it and turns it into to, uh, our Savior. And what about our Savior? He does something more remarkable than all that. He takes a woman who seduces her father-in-law for the sake of her own security. 
and he puts her in the family tree of the most important genealogy of all time, a savior who will come to be known as the lion of the tribe of Judah. What a mighty God we serve and what a gracious God we have. Let's pray. You, Lord, you're perfect and pure and good. And yet you're willing to be called the lion of the tribe of Judah, a man who's none of those things. God, thank you for the ways you took ancient messes and turned them into the Messiah. And thank you for the ways that you're turning all the messes in all of our lives and transforming them into the miraculous. Are you worthy of all of this? Absolutely. In your name we pray. Amen.